This is probably one of the most awkward podcasts I've done to date because my guest is my father, the right doctor, Reverend Timothy W. Dulles. <laughs> no right yet, but that's all right. I thought it was right. No, that's a bishop. It's just doctor, the Reverend Doctor. The Reverend Doctor hmm. Timothy W. Dulles. Okay. So, I mean, start off with the first thing. I always ask everybody, please pronounce your name correctly. Timothy Doles. Thank you. So, of course, I know all these stories about you, but for the listeners, I sort of want to give them some background. So start off with like a little bit about sort of your now later in life, you've sort of defined yourself a bit more as a creative person, but your childhood was there creativity in your childhood uh, some classes your parents something that sort of influenced you that sort of led you down this path my childhood is based on being a twin and uh, the two of us did not get along very well so my parents sent us to school all the time we went to school 12 months of the year so during the summer we went to a special school that was for teachers and so for 30 students, there were 30 teachers. And we explored things we would never have done in elementary school. Uh, classical music, art interpretation through closing your eyes to music and just crayoning and see what comes out of it. Nature walks in the glen, biology, gymnastics, things that back in the 50s were never done in elementary school. And so we did that all year round till junior high school. And that started the creativity. And then in high school, I ended up being in the what was called the Art Service League, a way to get into school early and avoid all study halls and pick my classes. I would have to make posters for the school. So I learned a little bit of calligraphy and a little bit about art and balance. And the Mel Filler was the teacher, and he, he was a, an old football player. And he, so he, he approached art in a very, very constructive and pedantic way, but it made it fun and we all enjoyed it. And uh, we did all the artwork for the whole school. So, Just to be clear, though, this was Baltimore, Maryland. In Baltimore, Maryland, yes. Okay. Now, over the course of your lifetime, of course, which is most of my lifetime, too, the I always saw that you did a lot of creative things. Now, just to clarify for the minutes, you, you're a reverend. I never know like what to call reverend. You're not a priest. You're, yes, I am a priest. You are. I'm so yes. confused on the right terminology on that. Okay, technically, what would you call yourself? Reverend, priest, father. <laughs> I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church. Seriously? Yes. Okay. I always referred to you as reverend. That's a written title. Oh, that's the difference. Okay, I didn't know that. All right. So throughout the years like at the church, you did needlepointing, you designed your own vestments, you um, did posters. I, mean, I remember as a child, we used to do the, the silk screens silk screen. at, at Claggett and things like this. And so you, know, so you found a way to, even though you chose a profession that maybe was not necessarily inherently creative, to somehow incorporate these creative ideas and techniques and practices into your daily life. 
When I was interviewed for seminary uh, as a senior in, in college, I explained that I was a fine arts major and that I w- was going to you know, always be interested in the arts. And after the interview, the, the dean of the seminary turned to me and said, well, how do you see the priesthood enhancing your art career? I never thought of it that way. And I, th- I think I probably made a mistake. I, I emphasized the priesthood more than the art career. And then just found ways that throughout the, the work of it, working with children and youth, silkscreen and all the different ways of visual, through music and everything else. Since I sang in a cathedral choir from the age of seven, I was used to the liturgy of the church and tried to make it a little more lively and a little more fun. Yeah, I've always been incredibly envious of the fact that you can like pick up a musical instrument and like play it beautifully in like 10 minutes. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I never realized that. <laughs> you don't re- you don't remember that? Like you used to always just pick up random musical instruments. Like you brought an, a, a pipe organ into the church and like 30 minutes later you were just playing it as though you'd played it your whole life. Well, there's transfer from instrument to instrument. <laughs> Plus, I can't sing to save my life. And you made that very clear to me when I was in the choir. (laughs) When you told me not to be in the choir. Oh, I don't remember telling you that. You did it in a subtle way. But it's fine. I totally accept it. I have a horrible singing voice, and I'm fully accepting of that. That's fine. Um, Okay. So then moving on. So as I said, like you designed your own vestments. You did these needlepoints. You did hundreds and hundreds of needlepoints throughout the years. I mean, it took decades, really, to do all of them because you there were, what, 250? 222 kneelers in the church. They were cathedral chairs, and they had a little detachable kneeler, which was a little leather piece of thing, which was most uncomfortable. So I designed, from the lesser feasts and fasts of the Episcopal Church, a symbol and reminder of each of the lesser feasts and fasts. We never finished, but when I left the, after 26 years in one parish, the, the group is still doing needlepoint commemorations on the, the kneelers. So it's a continuing project. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember growing up we, the, where you would needlepoint your own vestments. You also did those big banners that we, we used as well. Like there was always some element of creativity, you know, and, and I, it was something that I always sort of was like looking for as a job for me, like a career for me. I was like, okay, he, he has something he loves, which is his job. And he has something else that he loves and he's figured out a way to put them together as one. Yes. Yes. We also did a uh, labyrinth in one of the chapels and that was sort of fun. I got four people to help me paint it. It was a large project, but we had a portable labyrinth and uh, took it on retreats and we could just roll it out and have a labyrinth to walk through well you i know you were you were away by then okay i'm like when was this i don't remember this this was um after late late in my ministry there okay great then okay so and then in your ministry you have now lend you sort of gone on to do iconography hagiography uh, and so it actually is relevant to how it, your profession as being a priest is how that came about. So what's the story of like, how did you even get to being an icon writer? Well, it was all very innocent in the beginning. My senior warden wanted to go to a lecture at the Virginia Seminary by some icon writers. 
she was somewhat in, intimidated by the seminary community. So I said, well, I'll go along, and, and while you're listening to the lecture, I can go through the bookstore. Well, of course, it didn't happen that way. When they came, uh, the two of us sat down, and there was a young man who talked about his icon writing. He used uh, the wonderful quick method, and he could paint an icon, as he said, in, a, in an afternoon and sell it and make money. So I, I was not impressed by that. But then a, a young lady who got up from Rockville, Maryland, and she said she and a friend from Russia had a studio, and they did icon writing using the 9th to 12th century canons of color, design, and taught and sold. And she went on to tell about it. It sounded fascinating. And as we left, my senior warden said, oh, I'm going to take a course with her. And I said, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> and about, oh my, three, four months later, she came to me and she said, there's been a real problem. The young lady who spoke to us at the seminary has absconded with the funds from the studio and gone to Ireland and Iona, actually, to open her own studio, but left Irina Belikova, a Russian iconographer, in Rockville, sort of holding the bag. And she needed some income. She had a 16-year-old son. Her husband worked in the government from Russia, but that she needed help. And I said, well, I do not like writing checks. I don't think that's a, a way to really help people. So I said, well, what we can do, we can offer her a class every Saturday for two hours, and every student will give her $20, and we have five students, and that would be $100 a week, and, and I think that would help her. Okay, wait, wh what year was this? About 1981. Okay, because $20, that doesn't sound like a lot. No, well, no, but for for two hours, it, we we weren't trying to make a big deal of it, but just to give her some money so she could survive, basically. And so that was, she said, okay, and I made the announcement and found I had four people who would do it, but I said, I promised five, and I thought, well, you know what, I'm number five. So I went as a, um, the fill-in for $20, and that lasted eight years. <laughs> I was a fill-in for eight years, and then I, I retired and, and came to North Carolina. And the class continued. Irina still teaches. She restored icons in Soviet Russia. They were not allowed to write icons, but they were allowed to restore them. So she said, you'd be surprised. You can restore from a blank board <laughs> a whole icon. But she was very talented, and she still is. And she works with the, the National uh, cathedral in Washington, the Greek National Cathedral, and does icons for them. I'm sorry, did you say the Greek National Cathedral? Greek Orthodox. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's Greek Orthodox. We we became we all became very good friends, and she never could understand that a priest would be doing this, this icon work. But uh, we never tried to explain that, and we just did it. And we had the class got much larger, and, uh, and she, she enjoyed it. Okay, so just for the listeners, but also maybe for me as well so a little bit, give us a differentiation of the, the nature of an icon versus a painting. If you want to go back into like the nature of like what makes an icon also kind of thing. Most people look at an icon and say, oh, isn't it beautiful? Look lovely in my living room or something like that. Well, that's nice. And then that's decorative painting. An icon is not intended as, as decorative painting. 
at least it wasn't until the Yaroslav school of the 17th century, decided to abandon the canons of color so that people could decorate their homes with icons with the right color for the right room. So that's when the Virgin Mary became baby blue rather than red because people wanted blue in their bedrooms with their Virgin Mary. And that's the way icon writing sort of deteriorated as far as I'm concerned in the 19th or 17th century. The older system of icon writing was, was very precise in the 9th century. And the, it was done by priests in the monastery. It was done with all natural products. An icon would be the representation of the presence of God. Symbolized with the gold, the 24 karat gold background usually, but at least in the halos. So you, you, it's not an icon until the gold is on. And gold goes on first because God is always first. Okay, just a stupid little technical thing. You said 24 karat. Does it always have to be 24 karat? Is that a, a sort of, a, you know, I'm looking for a little bit of like technical things. Like the, If you're going to do a real icon, you should use the 24 karat. Okay. And if you're going to do it, you use all natural things, sable brushes, tempera, which is egg emulsion with a fine, finely ground pigment. And that gets all mixed in, and then you get to paint with that. All natural things. When I do it, even the cotton used to apply some of the gold is cotton that I picked out in Holly Ridge, North Carolina. So it's all very natural. And it's sort of fun to go and do it that way. And it's a very slow and deliberate process. For my students, when I teach, for a 7 by 7 inch icon, it's going to take them about 8 Saturdays, 8 weeks. 8 Saturdays, 2 hours for each Saturday. But the time in between is good because that allows the paint and all the pigments to dry. And you do not go back and correct. Uh, some The tendency in, the, in Western art is to have a cloth there and wipe it off when it's wrong. In icon writing, you leave it and look at it and learn from your mistake how to correct it without removing it or, or having to make make a mess of the whole thing. But there are there are ways. I've had many different ways to have to repair students' work. One student, her dog licked the face off of the icon because of the egg temper was so tempting. So we had to learn to put the face back on John the Baptizer. And actually, it turned out very well because her first rendering with the dog removing most of the paint left a good background for us because the background is always a board a wooden board, linen put on it, gesso with rabbit skin glue. And what you're doing is you're making a stone. A stone is the stone upon which there will be offered a sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ on the altar is the main one. And most, uh, for tradition, the Roman Catholic Church for centuries, in the middle of the altar was always a stone for the sacrifice, because that's where sacrifices are made are on stone. So the board is made, and then from the board, once it's finished, which takes a long time, five to ten coats of gesso. And gesso is, is powdered marble. So that gets put on and sanded, burnished, polished. And then you, can, then you can start outlining your icon. Of course, it's not an icon until you get it all drawn on and then place the gold. 
Gil the background and the halos and the things that need to be gold, and then you're working on an icon. There is a prayer we use before every session. There are certain things we don't do. We're not supposed to talk. Now, I've had trouble with that, but we, um, we so we talk quite a bit. And we learn, but I use all of the classes to try and teach how the icon is to be read. That's why we write icons. We don't paint them. We write them to be read if you know the language. You, of course, it would help if you know Greek, but if you also know the language of lines and colors. By knowing that, you can you can look at an icon and you will know who the icon is, is who the person is, and the event that is being portrayed. But it takes a while to learn all the language. Yeah, you you and I have had many conversations about the different colored wardrobes that the people wear. You know, like you Correct. said, like Mary in her blue, red, 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 red. Red is a flesh symbol of flesh. Blue is a symbol of the holy. So Mary would wear a an undergarment of blue because of her inner holiness, and an outer garment of red because of her fleshliness. She was she was a a woman. Jesus, on the other hand, when you portray Jesus, you have him with an inner garment of red and an outer garment of blue. Okay. Well, one of the things that I'm always interested in when I look at any icon, whether it's your work or not, is the the nature of the symbolism. Because, I mean, uh, artwork in general has symbolism, but iconography is sort of very inherent into symbolism and usually whether it's uh, locks of hair, co colors of wardrobe, locations, etc. Et so are there some that like you can just sort of give out to say like, okay, anybody anywhere in the world, if you see an icon from this period, these are some symbols that you should try to rec recognize. Part of it is repetition of things. The idea that the, the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, very Trinitarian. So if there is something there, it's going to be there three times. And three is a three is a very very important thing, and then the the use of gold as a highlight. Gold is a sacred color; it it reflects, and what the icon is to do is to enhance and present once again an event when God acted in this world. So the each person gets to see the icon. An icon. People ask me what an icon is, and I try and tell them it's not really a picture. It's like an icon on a computer. It's something that you touch, and when you touch it, it opens a whole new world for you. That's what an icon does. Uh, when you, If you know how to, how to touch it and how to push the right button, it opens a whole new world. Each icon has an infinite meaning and is a is to be used as a spiritual thing. It's it's not, that's why I have trouble with showing icons in an art show. They're really not items to be shown. They're artifacts. They're religious items. So it's, you know, is it a sacred item or is it a picture? No, it's not a picture. And they, they are not portraits of people. They are representations of humanity and presentation of the holy. Uh, it's, a, it's a unique piece of art. And it's also very Eastern. The Western world doesn't understand. The Western world has uh, the sun up in the left-hand corner and casts shadows. An icon, if, if, it's, if it's any good, has very few shadows. 
because all the brilliance comes from the Christ child or the or the, or the presence of Christ. And so the, all the, if, there are, if there are shadows, they are from Christ. The inner light is, is part of the whole idea of an icon. Right. So basically there should be almost no shadows because the, the gold is the light emanator. And so the gold is from behind more or less. So well, as a viewer, gold, we don't see it. It's the, it's, the, it's the actual image of the Christ or a, a holy figure, one of the prophets or, or something. It's from that person comes forth the light. Light and darkness are absolutely important to an icon. Because when working in the Eastern school, you start with the darkness and bring the light into it. So that unlike Western art, where you shadow things, you, you add a little black or add a little brown, and it makes it dark and so you have a shadow. You, no, no, no. You start with the shadow and then put the light on top of it. So God is, is bringing light into the darkness. Okay, you mentioned that you do Greek and that you a lot of this is Greek, Greek Orthodox, this kind of stuff. Is there isn't there a Christian version of this? This is Christian. Okay, yeah, my I'm being ignorant on this. So, clarify why why Greek? Like, why not? Is there is there Roman Catholic uh, or is there? there are, well, there was the Orthodox Church, which is the Eastern Church, and the Western Church, the Roman Catholic center and the center in Constantinople. So you have two warring groups, each, each saying they're right about the Christian faith. The patriarch of Constantinople is the head of the Orthodox Church. Now, the Orthodox Church took on, as time went on, a nationalism. So there's, there's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, whatever country you're in, Orthodox faith. And they, they all have some uniqueness, and they also have some unique colors they use. So you can tell... Sometimes, like the the, uh, the great convent in the Sinai, St. Catherine's, you can usually tell a, an icon that was done there because they use uh, patterns of fabric that are, you can see have been transported and imported from Cyprus and from, from different places in the Mediterranean. And these little details help you identify where it came from and what, uh, what monastery it probably came from. Never is an icon signed by the person who works on it. It is, it is not a personal statement. That's one way you can, you can tell a real icon. If it has a signature on it, it's not an icon. Someone uh, mis, mis, was misinformed as to what they were doing. The object is of itself valuable. The meaning behind it is t timeless. There's very little we can do. In, in some of the icons we can't really tell where they were made. I've done some that are copies of icons from the 6th century, a little bit more primitive, but have a great deal of power. The trick is the truth of an icon is in its faithfulness to the church fathers. So when I write an icon in this day and time, I get a reproduction, a, a photograph of an, of an icon, and, and then work from that and try and helpfully, hopefully, restore some of the colors as they were intended from the canons of the 9th to 12th century, which were very specific. For instance, a um, mendicant monk would always be in brown. Uh, that's why St. Nicholas is usually shown in brown, whereas the, and Virgin Mary always has red shoes. That's an interesting thing, because she's the queen of heaven. 
there are different little little things like that that give you a clue. Most prophets have green. Very rarely do you use green for a vestment for a priest. There are blues and reds and whites and blacks, but uh, each color means something. Okay, but you, wait, you just mentioned these canons. Are these canons written down somewhere or are these like passed down, you know, teacher to student? Some people tried to write them down in between the 9th and 12th century to try and keep the order so that everyone could read them. I mean, if you do a, an icon and no one knows what the colors stand for, it was sort of useless. So they tr they, the monks did write them down, but not all the monasteries agreed on which color meant what. So it, it and then it fell apart, and as I said, in the 17th century, when people decided they liked they liked the, the icon, with, like the Virgin Mary holding the, the baby in her lap, with a nice picture, but they wanted it blue to go in the room, which was decorated with blue curtains or something. And so the Yaroslav school of icon writing abandoned the colors. They didn't abandon the forms, however. There are certain things about uh, angels and uh, and human beings. Uh, the all the icons of the Annunciation, for instance, there's a very clear distinction in space between the space that Mary uh, has and the space that the angel has. Usually, you'll see a divider between the two, and the angel speaks to Mary, and Mary listens, but there's no, they never touch each other. Uh, that's just one of their little, little oddities. Well, I remember a story, I don't know if you told it to me or I learned it somewhere else, that basically like the icons were the sort of physical embodiment of the stories of the Bible for the the illiterate, basically, the, the, the people who couldn't read back in, you know, 9th to 13, 16th century or whatever you were talking about. So, so the idea of being consistent makes sense because that way, if somebody traveled from church to church or, you know, moved from location to location, that they could still visually understand the same story because there was that consistency of tones, colors, Correct. motifs, and all yes. this kind of stuff. Yes, that's exactly right. And even the, the lines, the way the lines are done and the balance of an icon, if it's balanced properly, your eye will be taken to the holy person who's involved. It's not a, a random scene. It's not realistic. It's not a portrait. But your eye will be drawn by lines and color to the holy one. Right. But okay, but then I'm leading to the point of like, are there sort of endless icons that could be created or is it like the, there are only so many stories in the Bible and so therefore there's sort of only so many depictions of this that can ever be created? The biblical ones are usually narratives, uh, you know, telling the story that happened. I'm just finishing an icon now of the story of Jonah. So it shows Jonah standing on the shore and then getting in the boat and then being thrown out of the boat, swallowed by the fish, and spit out on Nineveh. So it, the narrative is right there, if you can, and you can read it. The idea of doing modern icons has taken a, a different sense of bringing the ideas and the images that have meaning for that person. For instance, uh, there, there have been icons done of the, the uh, papal figures of the past, and they, they would incorporate specific symbols of their time as the Bishop of Rome. Or St. Nicholas has changed from being uh, St. Nicholas to being 
more or less like Santa Claus. But the, the, and the there, Fiacra is an interesting new one. Fiacra was found. I don't don't know where you find these things, but someone found Fiacra uh, was a gardener, and he uh, he always had a shovel, and he he was became what we call the patron saint of gardeners. Well, there's the, there's your, your icon. You do this man standing there with his little shovel and with little flowers and things around. That's and that's how an icon can develop in present day, by bringing symbols in that will tell you something about this individual who is through his work expressing the presence of God. Some of them are very good. Some of them are wrong. St. Francis, for instance, Always shows Francis with birds and animals. That's really not what St. Francis was working. St. Francis was a person who gave everything he had to the poor. So actually, uh, an icon of Francis in his brown robe will be showing the, the, the giving away of things instead of an ornate gold church in the background or some some valuable thing. He did not. He would. He would not have been that way. But the, the, it's pretty to see a saint with some birds in his hand. So that that goes. Okay, a lot of artists work with iconic imagery, iconic sort of references. You know, like there are many contemporary artists using gold and using even the the, the canon. You know, so the colors and the, the poses and the everything. So how do you feel as sort of a as I'm going to say as a bit of a purist? How do you feel about like modern artists inter- reinterpreting through new mediums or new methods of expression? What I'm thinking photography and digital and other kinds of ways of sort of reinventing this idea. Like, how, What's your input on that? Well, I, I think color and shapes have an innate uh, way of communicating. And that needs to be used in, a, in, in any way, I, in a, whether it's through photography or digital work. For instance, when I was in, in Romania and saw a church that was restored with uh, frescoes, and instead of using the traditional colors that we're used to, they did everything in grays, black, white, and red. And that was it. A very dramatic use of color in this huge building it was all all the frescoes were in those colors i thought it was a very powerful piece but very unusual it wasn't the same as looking at an icon for sure but it certainly had power and made made the presence of god all the more uh, obvious okay wait within that there's one thing you only do two-dimensional icons are icons three or can they be three-dimensional or is it only the two-dimensional icons are two-dimensional but they are usually covered with a rizza or shirt to protect them and the rizza was then elaborated with gems and jewels i was going to ask you about this stuff yeah they they are they're amazing the museums love the rizzas but the icon writers became very lazy when the rizzas took over and they would only paint the face and the hands and then put the rizza on there was nothing behind them so it it was a defeating purpose unfortunately but it, it was they were decorative and then a lot of people made a lot of money on it but that's not what an icon's all about. Okay, which leads to the great question of like the sales versus, you know, teaching like okay, you're my father, so I know probably a little bit more inside baseball here about you than a lot of people, but you you're not a fan of the idea 
of basically commercializing or monetizing your creative expression. So I, I can call it your artwork. You would, you like from our conversations, you would rather try to make some income off of teaching other people how to do this rather than just selling an icon. Right. I had the choice when I was leaving college uh, to go to seminary or to go to Winterthur Museum and become with a course of connoisseurship. And when I realized that the connoisseurship was, it sounds very nice and, and being nice to be a curator or something. But then I found that, that was really the person who raised money for an institution. And you learned all the historical facts about things and could date furniture and all. It was all very fascinating. But then I thought, I, that's not really what I want to do. And I had a terrible time selling any of my work at that time because my art professor used to say, always sell it at a price that when you when it's gone, you still feel all right. So it sort of pays for losing something you really love. And I thought, well, that, that's, that's a sort of an interesting have, way to do things. I wouldn't want to have to live that way. So I went to seminary instead of the <laughs> art artwork. I think even now that I wonder if I should have gone and taken that course, it would have been much more lucrative uh, in terms of the financial. But I think that teaching Iconography. As a matter of fact, I used I used iconography with the college students here at UNCW. I just gave them all a little board, seven by seven inches, and we and we did the face of Christ. It's, it's really called the the holy face, not made with human hands. And uh, I taught them the, the rudimentary parts of what an icon was. And I have never, I think, in in my work with college students, I've never seen a group actually become aware of something different. And another way of expressing so quickly as to, to participate in doing an icon. And each icon was different. They all were different because people see things differently. That's, that has, that's the root of it, actually. I taught a course in Wa Little Washington, North Carolina, at a parish. And this woman drew the image on the board. And I looked at it, and it looked nothing like the image that I had on my board. So I stopped the class and I asked her, I said, is that what you see there? She said, oh, yes, it's just right. And I thought, well, you see something that I don't see, or I see something you don't see. But in a way, that's your icon. So I encouraged her to continue doing it the way she saw it. And it, it ended up being a, a very lovely icon. But it was not, shall we say, authentic and accurate uh, reproduction of a seventh century icon, but it certainly was hers. And in teaching also, I had a class one time that one one student, a woman who came, and I, I had just introduced them to the class uh, that we were gonna be doing this icon, and I said we were doing the face of Jesus, and there was a little bit of silence, and she didn't say much. And the next day, she started work, and by Wednesday, we were interviewed by a newspaper, the local newspaper, and she. I listened to her interview, and she said, oh, yes, she drove all the way from Georgia, all the way up to Highlands, and uh, she was thinking about what saint, what woman saint she was going to do an icon of. And when she arrived, and I told her she was doing the face of Jesus, she suddenly panicked. She said, I gave up Jesus a long time ago. 
And I thought, I had no idea all this turmoil was going on right there in my little class. But she went ahead and did the face of Jesus. And afterward, after the week was over and she finished her icon, she said she appreciated being faced with something she really hadn't faced for years and that had brought her to a different place. And I think that's what teaching of icon writing is really all about. You see differently. You're brought to deal with things you may not want to deal with. Everyone says, you, oh, you have to be a really good artist. And I said, no, you just have to be willing to try and reproduce uh, someone's image of God's presence. It's very difficult. Well, okay, which lends to the question for me of to be an icon writer, hagiographer, because I know you love that title, the <laughs> the does one have to be religious? Like, do you have to believe in what you're yes. drawing? Oh, okay, that was easy. I think uh, it's writing of the holy. If you don't believe in the holy, I'm, I'm not sure what you're writing. I don't think it's, it has to be orthodox Christianity in the sense of you, you know, believe all the creeds and all the different things and all the canons and laws of the church, but that you have some sense, uh, some theological sense in your life, a relationship of the holy and the human. It's pulling together parts of what I believe are reality in a moment. And then once the icon's done, I, I always get the feeling once I finish it and, and look at it, I always look at it and say, did I do that? It's, it's, it's creating something that you had no idea that you could do. And in a way, I would say, from my perspective, I didn't do it. I was only responding to a spirit that was embedded by the, the ancient fathers and through the centuries has come down to us now. I wish we could recover more of that, but that's where I am now. All right. Now, how do, how do you feel about icons? Okay, I guess the first question would be, where should an icon be? And how do you feel about the fact that a lot of the ones that probably were initially in churches have now ended up in museums and private collections and things like this? Like, is there a perfect place where they should be? And, and how do you feel about them not being in that perfect place, probably? Well, the perfect place, yeah, is, is on the iconostasis, the wall of icons in a church. But since the Reformation, icons have not been favored in the church. But I, d I think what happens when an icon becomes an artifact, it loses its, its power. And then it goes in a museum, which is nice. And people read the date and, and all that. That's, that's nice, but that's not what an icon's for. An icon is supposed to help you, help you see something more. Now, one of the, like, where do you put an icon? I had a, a student who worked for IRS. She was a, one of the big mucky walks in IRS in Washington, D.C. And she just, when it came time for income tax and things like that, her office was a just a very hectic and wild place. And she was the one in charge. And she said she didn't know what to do. She was at her wit's end. And I gave her an icon of the Christ child. And I said, just put this in your desk drawer. And when things get really bad, open your desk drawer and just sit and look at it for a few minutes and then put it back. And she said, oh, you know, like, well, that's silly. But she did it. And weeks later, she said, can I keep the icon? I said, why would you want to do that? She said, because it worked. 
And I thought, well, it's not supposed to be magical or anything. But what it does, it helps you move spiritually from where you are to where you might be if you understand the presence of God, even in the IRS. And so I know know it works. Some people put them on their walls and, and put candles around them and do things. I don't think they're to be held up and worshipped. I think they're to be used to help people worship. The iconostasis in an Orthodox church is a wall of icons. And we say, as a wall, it blanks out the Holy of Holies. Behind that wall is the altar and where the priest celebrates communion. But for an Orthodox person, the wall with all the icons actually helps you see the Holy of Holies behind it. So the wall helps you see behind it. Whereas for a Western person, a wall makes it so you can't see behind it. <laughs> it's a whole different way of thinking. It's, it's, I always say it's something like the, the Japanese idea of spirituality, to watch a stone grow. That, that to us is just, in the Western world, it's like you're really not talking logical. That's right, we're not talking logical. All right. So when it comes to the the production, you early on you talked about like using the certain materials and all this kind of stuff. Like how important is the purity of that? Because I mean, keep in mind, my perspective on icons more or less comes from you because you're the prominent part in my life that sort of discusses and where I get my knowledge about icons. But there are many other people that make icons and they use all kinds of different materials, be it the wood to the gesso to the grinding your own pigments, all this kind of stuff. Is that important in the actual experience for the viewer or is it more about the process of the creating? I think that the way it is done becomes part of the expression of the icon itself. I mean, I, I've seen many icons, that, you know, paper icon with a laminate over it, and then they sell them for you know, 15 to $20, and people buy them for souvenirs. That, that's nice, and it's a souvenir. That is not, that's not really what an icon is. They want to use oil paint or the, uh, the fast-drying stuff they use now. That's not an icon. Uh, that's a picture. That's a painting. When I was in um, in Europe one time at an icon studio, this gentleman was was painting an icon, and it was really a very beautiful piece. And he was doing it so it would be finished in about three hours, and then he could sell it. And I thought that misses the whole point because each layer of an icon has to be done very carefully. You start with the background, with the darkness, you come forward with the light, you you carefully, depending whether you're Novgorod school or, or, the, or some other school of icon writing, how you outline them or highlight them. Greek icons, for instance, there is a break between the gold and the individual in the icon, they maybe put their fingers through it or an angel's wing hangs over. There's a breakthrough from the holy into this world somewhere in the Eastern Orthodox icon. Now, the Greek icon is always self-contained, but that has to do with the Greek mindset and the philosophy of order and containment. So if you see an icon and the hand of the figure goes over the line from the goal out into the border, then you, it, it's not Greek. <laughs> it's, it's something else, probably Russian. Those are ways of, uh, that people try to express in very simple and, and 
they're not not offending, but they're just saying, this is what we believe. We believe in the transcendence of God, that God does come into this world. And so the Eastern Orthodox Church tries to have icons where they break through. Okay, so what do you think about the nature of the fact that like these days, so we're talking now contemporary art and uh, an artifact, even what you what you referenced sort of like once they're taken out of the, the church and stuff like that. How do you feel about them being sold on like auctions and again, again being put in museums and things like this? Like, does this still feel sort of pure to you or does it feel like it's just, you know, a, taken away from it? Well, it's a shame because I, I don't know how you put a monetary value on a religious item. When I started... I had a price of like $350 for this 7 by 7 inch icon. And then I said, you can buy it for $350. I will have done it. Or you can come and do it and I'll charge you $350 for the course. But then you have your icon of the same thing. It'll probably be better because it's yours. Now, now where's the money in that? <laughs> it, it means that the value of the icon becomes the work that's done, not in just some arbitrary value because someone thinks it's really important, historical, or unique. There are some icons, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has said that the, the only iconographer they recognize would have been the, the one who did the Trinity, which is all right, but I don't think identifying an iconographer is of any value. Who did the work is is not important. It's what the work is of. It's someone's interpretation of a biblical story or a biblical person or a person who has experienced God. Ever since, since the canon of the Bible is sort of being wrapped up more or less, although there, are, there was a revision I just read the other day that was done in 1998. And I thought, you're still translating the Bible. But whatever you use since then, there have been events that should be put on icons. Mother Teresa was a good one. Her being able to sort of say to people, she was not there to heal them in the sense of physical, but that they could die with dignity and in peace as human beings. That kind of quality can be expressed, I think, in the lines and colors and and figures that an icon writer can do, rather than a portraiture. Yeah, I, but I don't want to put money on that. How much? How much does that cost? I I have no idea. I, I saw her say, "Well, whatever, I can get a person to pay for it. That's what I'll charge for it." And one person said, "I can never lower the prices of my icons." And I, like, uh, I'm not sure what that's all about. I guess that's that's why I'm not in the business. Well, that was going to be sort of my next question. Is is like you have actively stayed away from the sort of the business side and the, the, the marketing and the publicity side of the arts world. Like I remember as a kid, you used to keep telling me like being creative is great, but being creative for money is not a great way to live. <laughs> so, like, so what, you know, what, I guess the question would be sort of like, where did you get this sort of position of not wanting to engage in the arts? We'll call it the art market. Maybe I'm not sure. I guess it, it, it's got to, got to have uh, had its its beginning in college when I was so-called majoring in art. There was, this was a 
there was no such thing as an art major at Washington Lee University when I was there. But I created it, and that was one of the beauties of a small college. If I could get two two other students to do it with me, the professors would give me the course. So I got I got a lot of people to do a lot of things, and I learned how to do engraving and printing and silk screening, and uh, the, the copper plates were always fun to, to cut with the acid. And then portraiture and, and oils and learning many, many different ways of work. But we never talked about selling and what, you know, that you would sell your work. It was yours. And then in the midst of that, I, I entered some things in an art show. And then some people wanted to buy some. And then I was, that was when it started. I, I, well, so what do I charge? It's and, the endless question to and, all artists. Yeah, you know, and I... And I thought it all depend. <laughs> in a way, it all depended upon what I thought it was worth, and then also what I thought the person could pay. And without making it a, a that they give up eating for a month or something. Um, but some people have so much money; it doesn't make any difference. And that's what's what's happened in, to a lot of art. People with a, with more money than they really need uh, just sort of buy art as as if it's a little thing that oh let's buy some art let's go out and have a big dinner let's have a party let's buy a car and they become items that are dispensable and they can be be bartered with and played with that's not art as far as i'm concerned i think art is far far more personal and more and if you don't mind my saying so more precious than all the other things and uh, so I, I treasure them. Like there's some icons I could never sell. <laughs> I, I could never, I, I will not part with. What uh, ones that you did? Yes. Yes. Why? Well, one of them is because my teacher, Irina, helped me do it. And I know, I know the parts of the icon that she helped me do. This and is St. George, right? St. John. St. John. St. John the Evangelist. Okay. And there are parts that she did, and but I don't tell many people which parts she did because they all look so good. I did part of it, and we had it was an icon that came out of discussion, and what some people consider a mistake. There are some errors in the way that icon was done, but that that brings back a whole relationship with a teacher who uh, who was just an amazing iconographer. She still is. She. She has a quality. She can take a brush, and that brush will do things you've never seen before. I remember you always telling me stories about Washington Lee and on all the different professors you had. Some of the great stories, which I then have instigated in or implemented in my teaching methodology, like the great stories of, I believe it was Professor Junkin doing a, a saying like, "If you." If you do what I ask of you, you get a C. If you do more than what I ask of you, you get a B. And if you can teach the course, you get an A. Yeah, that was one of them. Yeah, they, they there were all sorts of interesting little things like that that the teachers did. But that's because it was a university where the teachers and Dr. Junkin, the same person, always said, "I would love to have a good relationship. You come halfway, I'll meet you." But you have to come the halfway. You, a relationship doesn't start because you sit and hope. Absolutely. <laughs> you you yeah. have to go halfway, and the teacher meets you halfway. Uh, and then I had a teacher who used to, we handed in a paper every week 
He's a professor who did sociology. And each week we hand in a paper. And by the next class, which was usually two days later, he would hand the paper back. And he'd written more than you wrote in commenting and started sort of a dialogue with every student on their papers. And I thought, that is really what teaching is all about. And so I tried that when I was at uh, Cape Fear Community College. And I had the students write papers every every day, every week, and I'd write back to them. Some of them didn't understand it, which was fine. And they thought, and all they were interested in was the grade. And I said that, that as far as I was concerned, the grading was the same way. If you do, if you do a minute, if you just attend and stay awake most of the time, you get a C. We used to call it a gentleman's C. If you did a little bit more, you could get a B. And if you could enter into this dialogue with me and help me learn as you learn, then you get an A. Some of the students are very happy with that. Some of them did not like it. But I know. And as a teacher, I wonder whether that's like a new thing. Like, is that our gen, the, like, well, I guess younger than my generation, but like, is it, the, is it the newer generation that is less interested in learning and more interested in grading? Absolutely. Because, because grading grading is the, is the way that people judge people now. You know, well, so, what, so what grades did you get in, in, in seminary? What grades did I get in seminary? I, I probably, hopefully, I think I got all B's and C's, but that was because I was married 10 days before going to seminary, and I had more important things to do than studying all the things the professors gave me. And so it was a different thing. I had a friend who, if he didn't get an A, he was distraught. And I said, well, if you go to a parish to be a, their parish priest, are they going to ask the grades of your classes in seminary? And he said, well, they might. I said, well, if a parish asks for my grades, that's not where I'm going. Their values are different. And I think that's what's happened. We've, we've reduced people to a grading system, which is not very consistent, by the way. It's true. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, they try to do it. The governments try to enforce like rubrics and all kinds of silly things to make it consistent. But it's, it's so subjective. Like, that's I mean, right. it, there's no way. And and like I've been in, I've been in the academic world and being an artist for twenty some odd years now, and not a single person has ever asked me my grade point average. Even in academia, they've never asked it of me. They they just want to know if you graduated and see examples of your work. So like the the I wish that the emphasis was more on quality than some random rubric that is arbitrarily given kind of of a grade. Like in a certain way, I. And I sort of, again, envy like the position you have where you teach courses sort of on your own time and your own thing, and you're not associated with any sort of schools or anything like this. So there's no grades. They just do it, and there you go. And they're happy. Done. They learned. That's a really envious position. The people who do my class have find that that Saturday for two hours is a time that's different from any other time of their, their week. And I have one woman who has been doing this now for 13 years. I keep thinking, how many icons does she have to do? But she said, that's not the point. And she gives them away. She gives them to her church or to friends. And she just is delightful when she comes in and she, she gets all her work, her stuff in front of her to do her work. And she's, we say our prayer and she just goes to work. She's not a great, I would, I would say she's not a great 
artist, but she certainly does her best to reproduce from the church fathers what she sees. And uh, she's had some interesting problems. I mean, the, the, we have fun with her because she, she's not too self-conscious in that. She did a, a, an icon about Elisha's ascendancy into heaven with the chariots, and she had some like eight horses, but she ha had like 20 legs. And we said, you know, there are too many legs for your horses. And so she she just laughed and said, well, we'll just get rid of a few legs. And I thought, well, that's one way of doing an icon. But I thought we were supposed to copy what was there. And, and of course, it, it worked out. And it was a, a re-looking at, at the old icon. But it depends. And each student, each student has their own way of approaching it. Everyone comes, and I found out that most students come, they will do what I tell them to do for the first icon, and after that they have an icon they want to do. And it's hard because a lot of people want to do an icon that's actually a painting. And transferring from one medium to another is, well, I'll just say it's impossible. You can't do it. You can try, and it comes out with a beautiful product, but it's not the same. I have a woman who's now doing an icon of a Leonardo painting. And I said, you know, you will never have an icon that looks like a Leonardo painting. One, Leonardo was doing realism. We're doing idealism. <laughs> and we're doing, we're doing symbols, not perfection. One one student asked me once if she could put some rouge in the Virgin Mary's cheeks. I, I said, well, no, <laughs> you can't because it's not a person. It's it's an icon. Okay, wait, you just used words symbol and representation. So to a certain extent, like is metaphor, is that too far of a word? So like, is, is an icon meant to be a, a symbol but not a metaphor? Yes. Okay. I I, th I think metaphor is too too technical. I think symbol. I, Jungian idea of symbolism, the wonderful symbols that that Jung came up with that helped us understand how we connect as human beings through symbols, and those are the symbols that are are really important. And I, a metaphor uh, metaphors are fun, but I don't know similes are fun too. But okay, just asking. Yeah. Last little bit here. Okay. Um, I guess the question, because there are sort of a limited scope of icons that exist in the world, what keeps you motivated to continue to do them? I would imagine at some point you're going to run out of ones you can do because I've already seen you do copies of, of the same ones over and over a few times. Well, doing an icon, if you do one and then you like it and you want to improve it, you have to do it all over again. You can't just sort of fix it. And so that's why I've done, I, there, the transfiguration, I think I've done four times. Some of which were, some were sold, some were given as gifts, and one stays with me. <laughs> so I don't think there's a limit to it. And, I, and just the number of books that I have on iconography just show me that there's no limit. I have limited myself in some ways because I don't like doing icons of, what should we say, sort of religious rituals. There was one I did of the, the gathering of the Nicene Council, the Council of Nicaea under Constantine. 
But that's not the Bible. No, no, it's not. But it's, it's an interesting icon, and it's an interesting moment in, in church history. And I did it, and it was sort of fun to do, but I, 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 didn't, I, don't, I don't think that has as much to it as a, a religious figure who did some writings or did some, I mean, even Irenaeus or, or some of the early church fathers, the desert fathers, the, and even people, I think that someday there'll be a, an icon for Henry Nouwen and people like that who spoke of a, in a language that was so simple and so easy, but he also understood the limits of teaching and spirituality, aloneness and solitude, and the difference of these things. And he, and he did it by words, and I think I, I try and do it with the symbols of the church. Speaking of that, like now that I think about it and I'm sort of reflecting on it, this conversation, is that I've never seen the crucifixion. I've never seen the 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 Okay, fine. Yeah, okay, there's the crucifixion. I've never seen, I've never seen the um tw- the the Last Supper. Uh I'm thinking like the more uh broad you know, cross-cultural imagery, like the the very uh, Christian uh, imagery kind of thing, is are those not as frequent in icons, or are you just choosing not to do them? I, I just choose not to do someone like the, the Last Supper. I think it's been done. I mean, it's it, the the it's a it's a fresco and it's beautiful. I don't need to, to deal that. I like to pick ones that are going to say something that I think the people of today need to hear. One I had fun with is over there on the wall is the adoration. Well, actually, it's the presentation of the gifts of the Magi to the Virgin Mary and to the baby Jesus. And I found this in the, a border of, of a large icon. It wasn't the icon itself. It was the border. And I found it, and I think it's one of the more powerful pieces of showing what adoration may be about these strange-looking men, some of them having crowns, some not, presenting gifts that we don't understand, but the colors and the, and the, the way the, the thing is, is centered and focused on, on the Christ child without actually making the Christ child the center is part of what I think people need to hear. So I use that for, for, for Christmas rather than the, the one in Bethlehem, and whether he's in a cave or an inn. Or nativity whatever. scene. I've never seen a nativity the scene. Two, and they're terrible. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 because people didn't know what to do with so they made a narrative of it. And we, we've got to remember, as Christians, the, the birth of Jesus is not important to the early Christians. By, even by the ninth century, birth of Jesus was not important. Christmas became important only later when people wanted to know how to get here. For centuries, that was not the issue. The century was the, the question really centrally was who is he and what's he doing and what are we supposed to do, not how to get here. But then when things shifted and the whole concept, what's the center of the world anyway, and then they put it into a narrative, and and the narrative is is sort of fun, but. It's not. It doesn't have it. I, I going to Bethlehem and seeing what people have done to the the church there, where Jesus was supposedly born. I I always tell the story that I was there with a group of clergy one time, and there's one clergyman in the group of ninety, who kept asking the dumbest questions everywhere we went, and finally we got to to Bethlehem, and he looked at the at the center of you know where 
Jesus was born. The and he turned and he said to the group, he said, well, this isn't where Jesus was born. I thought, oh, he's finally understanding that this is a symbol of where Jesus was born. And I said, I shouldn't have said, but I did. How did you get to that? He said, oh, well, look around. They couldn't have been born here because the, 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 the cows and the animals would have slipped on the marble. Well, and I thought, yeah, uh, yep, that's what we have to put up with. But so I don't, so I don't have pictures of <laughs> that. I I think are overdone. The, the Annunciation is one that I tried to work on for for about ten years. I tried to do an Annunciation, but then I realized that every church I went into in Europe, and every, almost everywhere I went, frescoes, mosaics, icons, there was always a Annunciation. I thought I think that's overdone. Most people don't understand it anyway. Angels don't talk to people that way. And a, a little girl becoming pregnant without anything else, uh, it just doesn't work. So let's leave, let's not do that one. So I use, I use a lot of the other, other things. I found the Old Testament prophets are fun to do. I'm sure they have the best wardrobe to paint. <laughs> yes, they do. Now, I've asked you this you know, privately, but I'm going to ask you on the podcast also here, which is why have you not chosen to sort of interpret or create contemporary versions of this? Because I know you, of course, you're my father. I know you very well, but you're very creative. You also have your own sort of interpretation of things. You have this amazing wealth of knowledge and skills from your practice of icon writing. What has is there something standing in the way of the the idea of like producing your own sort of contemporary interpretation of this, or is it that you just are happy with what you're doing? No need to do that. My concept of icon writing, being a hagiographer, a writer of the holy, the holy as universally accepted is very hard to find, but in the old icon writers, there was a universality about them. And I liked, I'm trying to recapture those images today and be part of that so that what I write is not something that I dreamt up or thought about, but that I'm, I'm bringing something from centuries ago and bringing it into this world, redoing it and presenting it again and saying, did you ever see this before? Right. Okay. But my point in that is, is that these are very old and, and to a certain extent at this point, a lot of people, so I mean, I'm going with the idea of the general average person on, in the world. So not educated, not necessarily even religious and as you know, it's just an average person. They'll just look at that and say, oh, that's old. And, and they don't connect with it in any way. They don't, they don't feel some engagement with it other than as a historical element, whatever, or even just old. So my, my thing, you know, it, I would be very interested to see if you could find some way to take these tr very traditional ideas and the canons and the colors and the techniques and make it so that people today would be able to connect with it in a, in a more, you know, active way. That's my push to try and make you do something new. Well, yeah, I I don't know. I I, I don't find the, the the contemporary world all as exciting as as the old world in, in how they 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 represented things. Now, the the one icon, which is the one I always use, the first one, the, was the legend is that it was done by Saint Luke. The 
holy face not made with human hands is really unusual because it's just a face. There's no clothing. There's no. <laughs> there's nothing except a face, and it's the face of of, of Christ. I think it, it has a quality that no other no other work does. I mean, the other works. You look at the you know the vestments of the of the of the figures or the the robes, the where they're standing, what they're doing, who's nailed to a cross, whether the cross is upside down or you know all those wonderful little. Uh, well, Peter was supposed to. Okay, upside, upside like, down. What upside and, down? And the, the the angel Gabriel, or, or where, you know, all these wonderful things that have lots. They're beautiful wings and the all dragons. Stuff. Yeah, and, and you have all sorts of stuff. I think that in a, in a funny way, the face of Christ is 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 a simplicity of what I think that the gospel has to get back to, and that is a very simple sense that God, the holy, which the gold symbol, is made part of this world through an image of of a person so there's a person and a spirit all involved in that icon and 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 to usher people into that new way of thinking i'm not sure that many people are going to do that most people see it as idolatry and if you if you do make it the end and be it is idolatry and therefore needs to be destroyed but i don't think that's what is intended. The the church has gone two ways on it. I'm, I'm not going to get into that battle. I I sort of feel like this is a way that we as uh, as Christians can share with others what we think is is God's presence through the Old Testament and through the New Testament and through some of the contemporary stuff. I mean, I think that face of Jesus is very contemporary. Since my theology says that God is not in time, in the time-space continuum, then that takes me out of the time-space continuum. And um, that's hard to do. All right. Any advice that you might have for any sort of future icon writers, future creative people from your years of experience and knowledge? I think that trying icon writing with the discipline that I use from the 9th to 12th century is, is a wonderful spiritual discipline it doesn't sound like a spiritual discipline it sounds like a technical discipline but it sounds like being a painter in a studio right yeah no, but it's more than that because when you start you're given limits and then you, you then you're told how to do it and and but you don't like it and you're like why am i doing all these lines and what i'm doing it in black and white and then i do it and then i engrave this piece of wood and then i, I do, why am i doing all this and you sort of say just relax it's it'll, it'll come and then you put the paint on and the paint will will sit and when you put other paint on top of at least with tempera it changes and and when when finally when you're doing an icon the white board gets covered with paint and the moment that happens all the colors change and you can't i can, I can tell you that you can say oh yeah sure that's right no I, I think you have to experience that i've got some icon writers now who work with me who when it finally finally happens, and they go, oh, finally, no more white, <laughs> and 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 then it, it changes everything, and then you when you say, well, you know, that makes color a relative thing. You think, well, how much other things are relative, and then start you can start building out from it. It's an experience, and I think the discipline. I have one priest who started an icon with me. I think about four years ago, he's never finished it, and I keep thinking. That's that's I feel that's there's something wrong. 
And then I found out there is something wrong. This man's life is a mess. He, he was, he's an alcoholic. He has been divorced. He's, he's going through all sorts of therapy. It's, it's just absolutely endless, the problems this man has. No wonder he can't finish an icon. He can't finish anything. And, he, and it, it became very clear. And so part of, you, part of the person becomes part of the process of icon writing. You know, some people find solace in it. Some people find challenge. And one person I had did an icon. It was, it was okay. It was, it was nicely done. It was not a, 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 a wonderful work, but it was, it was good. And when she finished, she said, you know, she said, I'm not going to do anymore. And I said, okay, is there a reason? She said, well, I don't have anybody else who wants one. So what she was doing was doing it for someone else. And I could have, though I didn't say, but do you want to do one for yourself? Because she wasn't at the place where she could do that. All she could think about was doing for, other, for these other people. So it's part, that's what I think icon writing is all about. Now, you got to remember, icon writing in, in the tradition was always done by a priest and always always were done by men, obviously. That my inviting women to do it, and I also have women priests doing it, which is outrageous in terms of the tradition of the church, but that's okay. And I keep saying, I, I'm not sure that you've really understood it unless you welcome all people. The sense of inclusion is in doing the work also. I've had a wonderful time. People say, well, I don't know whether I should take the course or not. I said, well, why don't you pray about it? And, oh, well, I don't have time. I said, well, if God didn't give you time to do it, don't do it. If God gave you the time and tells you to do it, do it. Well, that's, people say, I, I don't know what to do with that. That's right. The icon writing is going to be a challenge for you. Do I have to come every week for 10 weeks? No, you don't have to. No. You don't have to. I'm not going to be that way. You you come when you can. I mean, sometimes the people can do them in, in the eight weeks. I think is 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 quite adequate. But some take you know four or five months to do an icon. And it's, it's the same icon that I did in overnight, basically. But although I can't do an, I I, I think the fastest I've ever done maybe five days. I I managed, although it wasn't dry when I finished, but it was close enough. The use of that icon then becomes an issue. When you, when you finish an icon, what do you do with it? The, when I taught up in, in Highlands at the museum, they gave me a house to live in for the five days, six days or so. And what I did, I gave the owner of that house the icon. And I said, you know, I want to thank, thank you. And that way of doing that is to give you this icon that we created. They, they just they didn't know what to do with it. They, they just thought that unbelievable. Like, you know, it, it didn't fit the decor, <laughs> but then again, it did. Well, I mean, that's sort of the question is like in this day and age, in contemporary, like, I guess the question that I would wonder is in your opinion, where, if icons are being made today, where should they be? Where you see them. I just gave someone an icon and they said they put it inside their door front door where the light comes in in the morning and so when they're sitting in the breakfast room the light bounces off of it and they see it and they said you know whether anybody else sees it not important but they see it and that brightness just just makes their day i would put it in the bathroom yeah 
it's a place okay. it's a place that I always see multiple times a day. That's probably unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I I just don't like people putting it like um, well I'll put it over on the mantle, you know. It, it, I think that that sounds like well, what what do you put on a mantle, you know? A status symbol. Yeah, something something you're showing off to somebody for else. Other people. Yeah, yeah. I I had one person buy one. And then he invited me to his home to show me what he did. He put it in a hallway leading to sort of the back of the house so that anyone going to the back of the house saw that icon. And he said he, that's what he wanted. It wasn't for the, the living It wasn't the living room or the entrance or the kitchen. It was entering into the more familial part of the house, bedrooms and, and uh, study, places like that. As you know, I've, I've done a whole wall in my office. <laughs> so I have my own iconostasis. But it, it's a nice reminder. A plumber did some work in my house. I was writing a check at my desk. And he came in and I, he looked at the wall and he said, huh, someone religious is here. <laughs> I said, how'd you guess? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> but, that, but in the way that iconostasis served its purpose, I mean, it became, that person was very aware there was something religious going on in here. <laughs> Pretty hard to miss, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, well I, I think that's true of icons. I, like yesterday, second Sunday in Advent, I took the icon of John the Baptizer and put it up in, by the altar because the gospel was about John the Baptizer. Now people can listen to the lesson and they can see him. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Sure. Sure.